Our speaker this evening is Professor Jonathan Lunin. He's the David Duncan Professor in the Physical Sciences and Chair of the Department of Astronomy at Cornell. Um, he's especially interested in the formation of planets and their evolution, um, and the pro in particular, the processes that could lead to environments that are hospitable to life. Um, as we were just discussing, he's worked on a number of spacecraft missions, including the Cassini uh, spacecraft to Saturn and the Juno mission presently orbiting um, Jupiter. Um, so thank you very much for joining us this evening, uh, Professor Lenin. Okay, well, thank you, Nathaniel. It's a pleasure to uh, be with you this evening. And um, <clears throat> I, I want to emphasize uh, that uh, Georges Lemaitre is a, a figure in the 20th century cosmology who really was rediscovered in the last 20 years. If you read textbooks uh, in astronomy from the 1970s and 1980s, you would hardly find mention of him. And it was in the last 20 years that his uh, contributions to cosmology have become increasingly recognized thanks to a number of individuals. Um, I began giving these talks back probably six or seven years ago. And, and it was just at that time that he was beginning to be reappreciated. And so what I wanna do is give you a sense, first of all, of what this remarkable individual did in modern cosmology talk a little bit about how his other role as a Catholic priest uh, and a prominent one, he was the president of the Pontifical Academy of Sciences, uh, caused uh, some interesting uh, controversies associated with what came to be known as the Big Bang model, which he, uh, he was the first to publish and, and, uh, and think up. But I also want to point out that his contributions go well beyond the Big Bang model. And, and in almost every major aspect of cosmology that we think of today in the broadest terms, he actually anticipated those ideas with his own insights from the late 1920s to the mid-1930s. And I want to talk also a little bit about his views on how this cosmos connects to the creator God. And uh, in doing so, trace out what I think you'll find is a much more sophisticated insight into um, the uh, metaphysical concept of God as uh, pure existence, as pure action, and as uh, the therefore the creator of uh, existence itself, of reality itself, something that Lemaitre recognized. So let me start with a very brief biography. Uh, Lemaitre was born, and I'm using the American pronunciation of what a Frenchman would say, Lemaitre, and I'm not going to do that for the whole evening to spare your ears. Uh, we'll use the Americanism, Lemaitre. He was born in 1894 in Belgium. He served with distinction during World War I in the Belgian army. Uh, he received uh, a, a significant medal for that. He uh, then uh, obtained a master's in math in 1920, had realized as a teenager that he also wanted to be a priest. And so he then pursued that and was ordained in 1923. Uh, he then obtained permission from his superiors to travel to the UK and to uh, the US. He uh, obtained a PhD in physics from MIT, actually working at Harvard College Interestingly, in the 1920s, Harvard did not offer uh, graduate degrees in astronomy, and so that was why he pursued his degree at MIT, even though he worked principally at Harvard. And his significant papers came out uh, as a result of his PhD thesis, his initial significant ones, which I'll describe. And so he immediately became a professor at uh, the university in Louvain, Belgium, uh, he won the Franck Prize in 1934, nominated by Albert Einstein. That was, at the time, the second most lucrative prize monetarily after the Nobel. And he then won the Eddington Medal of the Royal Astronomical Society in 1953, which was uh, particularly um, for him a great honor because he had worked with Eddington uh, during his, his uh, time uh, up to and leading to his PhD. Uh, he was elected to the Pontifical Academy of Science in 1936. 
Uh, he was also a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. He was an emeritus professor in 64, and he died in 1966. And his death was in a year that was particularly significant for uh, verifying the Big Bang model over what was the competing model, the steady state model of the universe. And we'll, we'll see something about that a little bit later on. So to understand Lemaitre's contributions requires setting the stage a bit in terms of understanding what cosmology was like at the turn of the 20th century. The turn of the 20th century, telescopes were just becoming powerful enough to distinguish what were called spiral nebulae and to recognize that these were actually galaxies beyond our own Milky Way galaxy. But at the time that Einstein worked and developed his theory of general relativity, which was a geometric theory of gravity, that was still not well established. And so there were arguments about whether everything you saw in the sky was in the Milky Way and the Milky Way was the universe and the universe was assumed to be static and eternal. Telescopic observations up until the early 1920s did not contradict those assumptions. So Einstein's dilemma in his uh, theory of general relativity was that he could write what were called the field equations, where the effects of matter uh, on the geometry of space were balanced by uh, essentially the, the geometry itself. And because matter distorts space, that matter would tend to pull everything together into a general state of collapse. And so the question that plagued Einstein was, why are the stars still hanging up there? Why didn't everything collapse on top of itself? And of course, famously, as uh, probably you all know, Einstein resolved this issue by introducing a term into his equations, an artificial geometric term that would balance the effect of matter, the so-called cosmological constant, something that he felt was inelegant, but that was necessary. But it was only uh, a few years after Einstein introduced his theory that others began playing with alternatives. And in particular, Alexander Friedman in Russia, um, who was a mathematician, showed that there were a number of solutions to the field equations where you could assume an expanding universe uh, and therefore avoid the cosmological constant. But he didn't actually engage with the data. It was part of a theoretical exercise that included collapsing universes and static universes and expanding universes. Around the, so this is Friedman here on the left. He died uh, early and young, and he would have been a major player in cosmology possibly, although being in Russia uh, at the time of the revolution, he was rather isolated. Um, much less isolated was Willem de Sitter, who um, also took up solving Einstein's equations. And as you can see in the lower right, um, had significant interactions with Einstein himself. The two of them are shown there talking with each other. And what, what de Sitter did was to solve Einstein's equations, not with an expanding universe, but with a universe that had no matter in it at all. And one could actually show that by putting two test particles in this empty universe, they would actually tend to move apart from each other. What Lemaitre did was Two, two things. First, he actually engaged with the data. By the time he came on the scene in the mid-1920s, uh, he had become a Catholic priest. He was getting his PhD at MIT. He was actually working uh, at Harvard College Observatory uh, on reducing data associated with variable stars, which would turn out to be one of the, the keys to understanding the distances to galaxies. And so he engaged with the data. But he also recognized that a model like de Sitter's was um, unacceptable because the universe did have matter in it. And yet Einstein's model was not acceptable because it required a cosmological constant. And he developed a kind of hybrid between Einstein's model and de Sitter's model uh, and also Friedman, although he was unaware of what Friedman had done until Einstein told Lemaitre about it. But Lemaitre's model essentially looked like Einstein's uh, at small time scales and looked like Lemaitre, looked like de Sitter's model at long time scales. And it was an expanding universe where space itself was expanding 
but space also had matter in it. That is, there were galaxies present. And in that universe, Lemaitre could show that galaxies recede from us with a speed proportional to their distance. Now, how were the speeds of recession of galaxies determined? The distances to galaxies was a difficult enough problem. Uh, the cosmic distance ladder is a lecture unto itself, but let's take that as a given. <clears throat> but what is important for our lectures is that um, the measurement of the recession velocity of galaxies was conducted by astronomers who actually didn't understand the implications of that recession. And the way that this recession was measured was by looking at the spectra of galaxies, which is the pattern of mostly dark lines in the luminous spectrum of galaxies, but also some bright lines that are a function of wavelength or color, as you see here in, uh, on the right-hand figure. And that pattern of lines is determined by the abundances of elements that are present in the stars in those galaxies. Now, a, a galaxy that is moving away from us will have that pattern of spectral lines shifted to the red part of the spectrum as shown in the diagram. If the galaxy is moving toward us, and some of them actually are, then the lines are shifted toward the blue. What astronomers found beginning in the early to mid-1920s was that most galaxies were actually redshifted, were moving away from us. But the question was, why? Was the color shift simply the movement of these galaxies through space, or did it have to do with something else? And what Lemaitre recognized was that these recession velocities were actually uh, the detection of the expansion of space with the galaxies embedded within that expanding universe. And so the analogy here, as you see on the slide, is with a balloon. Uh, if you think of our three spatial dimension universe as reduced by one dimension, so that it's now a two-dimensional universe, so that all matter is constrained to move on the surface of this balloon, don't worry about the third dimension. Then if you launch a light ray from one galaxy to another and the universe is static, that light ray will have a constant wavelength. But if as the light ray is moving, the universe is expanding, the galaxies will move apart from each other and the light itself will be stretched as well. So the wavelength of that light indicated by the blue and red bars, you can see that wavelength gets stretched out as space expands and the galaxy appears to be redshifted. But it's not the galaxy's proper motion through space, it's the expansion of space itself. And Lemaitre recognized that and actually published a relationship that showed uh, that that recession velocity is just proportional to the distance to the galaxies based on his expanding universe metric. But for decades, nobody recognized that. The canonical story was that the speed distance relationship was derived and published by the American astronomer Edwin Hubble in 1929, who carried out with collaborators in California important measurements of these recession velocities. And he derives in this paper, 1929, uh, the relationship that the recession speed of the galaxy is equal to the distance the galaxy multiplied by a constant, which came to be known as Hubble's constant, or the Hubble constant, which is given in kilometers per second, which is a velocity, per megaparsec, which is a funny unit that astronomers use when measuring the distance to galaxies. It's a million parsecs, and the parsec is a unit of distance that derives from the parallax effect, whereby nearby stars are seen to shift their angular, their position in the sky relative to the background. And that's due to the changing perspective as the Earth orbits around the sun. And that's where the parsec comes from. It's about three and a quarter light years, but astronomers don't use light years. They use parsecs. And for galaxies, you need to use million parsecs. Lemaitre published that same relationship two years before Hubble did. But he published it in French in a Belgian journal, which Anglo-American astronomers simply didn't read. And back in the 1920s, without the internet, 
without computers. The way you read a journal was it came in the mail or it came to your university's library or observatory library. And if you didn't have a subscription, you weren't aware of what was in that journal. And so as Bob Kirshner, an astronomer at Harvard, uh, wrote in Physics Today, looking back, Lemaitre seems to have been severely underrated. Writing in French was bad enough, but publishing in Belgian journals was fatal. Now, Lemaitre would have been forgotten, except the story takes an unexpected turn. Lemaitre had worked with the famous astronomer, Sir Arthur Eddington. And when Lemaitre got his PhD, he then left, went to the United States, got his PhD, got a professorship in Belgium, went back. And in the meantime, Eddington was working on the problem of the expanding universe. And he came up with a universe model just like Lemaitre's, which uh, was published in a summary form in a magazine called The Observatory. When this was pointed out to Lemaitre, he panicked because he realized that he was being scooped by his own former mentor. And so he wrote to Eddington and reminded him that he had made the same investigations two years before in this Belgian journal. And Eddington was mortified. To his credit, he felt really bad. And so he arranged for Lemaitre's 1927 paper to be translated and published in English in a journal that everyone read, the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. And there it is in March of 1931, the English translation of the 1927 paper. But <clears throat> this translation omitted the key part of the text that had been in French that showed that Lemaitre had come up with a velocity distance relationship. And here it is <clears throat> from the 1927 paper. And it's pretty easy to read in French because there are a lot of cognates here. So utilizing the 42 uh, nebulas, which is what galaxies were called at the time. So utilizing the 42 galaxies taken from Hubble's list and from that of Stromberg and taking account of the proper motion, the proper velocity of the sun, which you have to take account of, uh, one finds a mean distance of 0.95 million parsecs, a radial velocity of 600 kilometers per second, and therefore the constant in that relationship that Lemaitre derived as part of his solution to Einstein's equations of 625 kilometers per second per million parsecs. Not very different from what Hubble derived two years later. So this omission was until 2011 unexplained except by conspiracy theorists who said that, you know, Lemaitre was denied this honor because he was a priest or something else or Hubble conspired or whatever. But Mario Livio, an astronomer at Space Telescope in 2011, found the answer after looking through the files of the Royal Astronomical Society, which published MINRAS, and he found that Lemaitre had made the deletion himself. And why did he do that? Well, in his letter to the editor of the monthly notices, uh, the editor's name uh, being Dr. Smart, which is a good name for a journal editor, Lemaitre said he sends the translation of the paper, which evidently Lemaitre done himself. I did not find it advisable to reprint the provisional discussion of radial velocities, which is clearly of no current interest. Lemaitre actually uses the term actual interest, but in French, the word for the English word current in French is actuel. And so Lemaitre's English was not perfect and he translated a false friend as a cognate, but he meant current interest. And what he was really saying was that in 1927, the number of galaxies that he had access to was quite a bit smaller than what Hubble published in 1929. And in fact, Lemaitre didn't explicitly fit a linear relationship. He knew it had to be linear. And all he did was do that little division that we saw in the French paragraph. Uh, Hubble actually plotted things out, but Hubble had enough data to do that. And so Lemaitre felt that by 1931, when his English translation was prepared, that really the data from 1927 were out of date. His solution uh, to the Einstein field equations was not out of date. That was the important part from his point of view, but the data he used to derive what would come to be known as the Hubble relation 
he felt was out of date. So Lemaitre did not get to share credit for Hubble's law till 2011, uh, 2018, excuse me, and I'll tell you um, <clears throat> what happened at that time. The irony in all of this is that Hubble, who was a, a, a great showman and literally was instrumental in raising money for these big telescopes at Mount Wilson and eventually Mount Palomar in California, and loved taking celebrities like Einstein up to his observatory to look at the stars, never accepted the idea of an expanding universe. He never came out in favor of it. He thought that the redshift of light had something to do with what was called light fatigue, where light traveling long distances lost energy, essentially got tired and just got redder. In fact, you can go to the Los Angeles Times in 1941 and you see this article. Uh, it's actually a composite of very, a sort of a science roundup article, but the headline of it is Savant, which in this case is Edwin Hubble, wise guy effectively, refutes the theory of the exploding universe. And the first sentence says that the world's largest telescope shows that the universe is not exploding, but is a quiet, peaceful place and possibly just about infinite in size. That's what Hubble believed. He never understood general relativity. He never understood the expanding universe. He never accepted it. So again, Lemaitre would have faded into obscurity, except that he continued to work on the implications of his expanding universe and realized that one of the implications was that a finite amount of time in the past, the universe would have been incredibly dense and incredibly compressed. And when his former mentor, Eddington, wrote a paper in Nature in which he argued for an infinite uh, duration of the universe, Lemaitre realized that that could not be right. And so he wrote a letter to the journal Nature in response to Eddington, a letter that was called The Beginning of the World from the Point of View of Quantum Theory, and which is the paper in which Lemaitre lays out the notion of a start to the universe beginning with an incredibly dense state. In his case, he had a cold start in which everything was effectively a single quantum. And he then tried to work out the implications of what would happen to that single quantum as it divided after this, this beginning, what he called the primeval atom, uh, what the energy distribution would be. And so while that view of the Big Bang is out of date, the fact that there was a start uh, is credited to Lemaitre. And furthermore, uh, and that point is made by Stephen Hawking in his book, The Universe in a Nutshell, 2001. But furthermore, John Farrell, one of Lemaitre's biographers, points out that this paper was really the first effort to suggest what many specialists today in general relativity take for granted, that at some level, space and time must be quantized. And so these were speculations that Lemaitre made, but they were remarkably prescient speculations on the quantization of space and time, the discreteness that we now take for granted uh, for uh, the behavior of matter, but still has not been satisfactorily incorporated in general relativity. So Lemaitre went on to write a number of important papers. I'll give you one more example in a minute but I want to point out that Lemaitre's uh, model for the primeval atom immediately uh, became uh, interpreted as the result of Lemaitre's religious background, that in order to ensure that there would be a God who created the universe, the universe had to have a finite duration of time. And so here is this Belgian priest who happens to be a cosmologist telling the world that the universe began a finite amount of time ago. And in fact, although very little happened during World War II, when Lemaitre was stuck in Belgium, uh, which was under Nazi rule, and there was no science in the UK and much of the rest of Europe, uh, after the war, three astronomers, one Austrian and uh, one German and one British, uh, published in 1948 an alternative model called the steady state model in which the universe is always expanding, there's no beginning, Matters created one bit at a time to counter the dilution of the expansion. And Hoyle would write, actually he would say on his radio show, <clears throat> that 
he offered the steady state model in part as a response to what he perceived as a religious bias in what he called the Big Bang model. He coined the term Big Bang for Lemaitre's model and argued that it had a religious bias and that it was deep within the psyche of most scientists to believe in the first page of Genesis. Lemaitre always countered this and said that as far as he could see, the Big Bang remains entirely outside of any metaphysical or religious question. And that would have been pretty much where things stood, except that the Pope got involved. In 1951, Pope Pius XII gave the opening address to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences, and that address is now known as the Fiat Lux speech, the Let There Be Light speech, in which he wrote in beautiful prose that present day science has succeeded in bearing witness to the august instant of the primordial Fiat Lux, when along with matter there burst forth from nothing a sea of light and radiation, and the elements split and churned and formed into millions of galaxies. He wrote this himself, by the way. It has confirmed the contingency of the universe, hence creation took place. We say, therefore, there is a creator, and therefore God exists. Lemaitre was mortified. His opponents felt vindicated, and uh, Lemaitre felt embarrassed enough about this that upon discovering that the Pope was going to give the same speech to the much larger International Astronomical Union, which was meeting in Rome that year, he actually um, went to the Vatican and intervened with the Pope's advisors and possibly the Pope himself to have that portion of the speech removed. And to his credit, Pius XII did that. Nonetheless, um, this tainted Lemaitre's association with his model as being partly religious. Lemaitre did no further work in cosmology. By the time of the 1950s, the action had moved from the question of the geometry of space-time, which is now of interest again today, to the question of nuclear physics. How did the elements form in the Big Bang and later? Um, was there something in this initial explosion, which was now regarded as a hot explosion, that could in fact tip one off to its existence and, and test between the steady state model and the Big Bang model. Lemaitre did a lot of other work in the 50s and 60s. He was a pioneer in the use of digital computing and mathematical physics. He worked on cosmic rays. He worked on a number of things, but after the late 1930s, effectively nothing on cosmology. Before Lemaitre died, just before he died, a key observation was made that forced the steady state model to be discarded and the Big Bang model to be confirmed. The hot universe start to the Big Bang involved a very high density, high temperature universe, which was so opaque that light would be completely coupled to matter during the first few hundred thousand years of the expansion of the universe. Eventually, the universe becomes dilute enough and transparent enough that light can move freely through space. And that transition is effectively a screen across the entire sky called the cosmic microwave background radiation. And thanks to the expansion of space and the fact that this is the most distant signal that you can see, that signature is redshifted to a much lower energy, a much lower temperature, uh, from an enormously high temperature corresponding to the ionization of everything to a temperature of just three and a half degrees above the background. And that three and a half degree radiation manifests itself as a radio signal, as microwave static, and was detected by Penzias and Wilson, two engineers for Bell, who designed this telescope and found that signal in the 1960s. In fact, it was detected in 1965, and shortly before Lemaitre's death, he was informed by friends about the background radiation. He immediately understood the implications, and so he died realizing that his model was correct. Now, Lemaitre did many other things in cosmology, and I want to highlight just one other thing. Um, he, he was um, actually two other things quickly. One was that he was always worried about the data, and not only the astronomical data. He read the literature on 
the early uh, 20th century efforts to determine the age of the Earth. And he realized that his constant expansion universe with the proportionality constant, the Hubble constant that he and Hubble derived, the universe would actually be younger in age than the Earth. Now, we know today that that constant is much smaller than the one that Lemaitre and Hubble derived, and that is the problem. But Lemaitre didn't know that at the time. It was basically a problem of the galaxy distance and velocity data. So he put together models in which the universe would have an initial rapid expansion, followed by a stagnation phase that would stretch out the age of the universe, followed then by a constant expansion phase, which corresponded to um, the, uh, the slope corresponded to one over h, uh, where h is the Hubble constant. And so he anticipated in many ways the inflationary model of the universe. But more importantly, he went farther to explore the physical underpinnings of the cosmological constant because he needed now this cosmological constant to slow down the universe for a while. And so this is uh, one way of writing Einstein's field equations. They're written as tensors, which means that um, each of these terms is actually a matrix of rows and columns of numbers. The term on the left, the far left, is the geometry of the universe, the, the, the shape of the universe uh, that you're solving for or that you propose. The term on the right is uh, a tensor that represents the matter energy density of the universe that is curving space. And the middle term, which is geometric term on the left side of the equation, uh, the gamma corresponds to the cosmological constant, the fudge factor. What Lemaitre did was to speculate that it made a lot more sense if you, rather than taking the cosmological constant as a feature of space-time geometry on the left, that you moved it to the right and regarded it, as he did, as a vacuum energy, uh, something coming out of the essential energy of, of the vacuum of space something that's now recognized today to be essentially correct. Lemaitre this time published the results in an English language journal, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It was not ignored. Uh, and uh, in fact, um, he wrote that in order that absolute motion may not be detected, we must associate a pressure minus rho c squared to the density of energy of the vacuum. This is a negative pressure. And this in fact, is all the essence of the concept of dark energy that we have today. Robert Kirshner wrote in 2016, Lemaitre's interpretation is almost shockingly modern. That is more or less what we say today about the origin of the accelerating universe. And Simon Mitten writing last June about Lemaitre recalls when the accelerating universe was determined using Hubble data for which a Nobel prize was awarded uh, to two groups. Uh, Mitten was there at the meeting of those groups, and he said the excitement at the time was palpable, and I vividly remember my cosmology colleagues in Cambridge exclaiming that Lemaitre's cosmological constant is inflating the universe. And so it was recognized that it was Lemaitre who first put a physical interpretation on what Einstein had regarded as a fudge factor, and that physical interpretation is more or less what we think of as dark energy today a negative pressure that, is the, uh, that comes from the vacuum energy uh, of, um, uh, of space-time. I want to move from the physics to Lemaitre and his views about God and the creation of the cosmos. And these are important because we, we are left today with the spokespersons for the question of the creation of the universe is mostly being astronomers. And astronomers are, are generally not well educated in philosophy, but more than that, some astronomers have an active disdain for philosophy and some philosophers accommodate that disdain by essentially avoiding the question of metaphysics and the formation or creation of the universe or of cosmology. So specifically, let's look at a quote from a preface of a book by Stephen Hawking and his colleague Leonard Mladenov called The Grand Design in 2010. And in that preface, 
Hawking and Mladenov say, what is the nature of reality? Where did all this come from? Did the universe need a creator? Those are great questions. They then go on to say, traditionally, these are questions for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. I think people in an academic institution, particularly in philosophy departments, can appreciate how extraordinarily outrageous such a statement is, but the general public doesn't, and they tend to believe what scientists say. So let's then rewind a little bit and look at Lemaitre's view about the nature of time, which will lead us to his insights on what it really means for the universe to be created. So if you look at the 1931 Nature paper by, <clears throat> by Lemaitre, it has a statement in it that um, is quite extraordinary because it harkens back uh, without attribution to something that was written by um, uh, St. Augustine. And uh, it is the following. If the world has begun with a single quantum, the notions of space and time would altogether fail to have any meaning at the beginning they would only begin to have a sensible meaning when the original quantum had been divided into a sufficient number of quanta. And then he goes on to say, the beginning of the world happened a little before the beginning of space and time. That is space and time essentially were created with the world in his picture, or to be more correct, because he will distinguish between creation and beginning, the beginning of the world happened just as the beginning of space and time happened. Now, if you look at Augustine's quote from the City of God, he writes, if eternity and time are rightly distinguished by this, that time does not exist without some movement and transition, while in eternity there is no change, who does not see that there could have been no time had not some creature been made by which some motion could give birth to change? And in fact, if you substitute quanta for creature, quantum for creature, it's the same statement. And then Augustine goes on to say a little later, then assuredly the world was made not in time, but simultaneously with time. So, you know, Lemaitre was educated. Had he read the city of God? Did he pull this out deliberately or subconsciously? It's not clear. But what's important is that uh, Hawking then takes the same concept and uses it to argue against the idea of the creation of the universe by God. He says, and the preamble to this is, I took this from an NBC News article, uh, essentially reviewing what Hawking said in various books. And the preamble to Hawking's quote is that Hawking says that because the universe began as a singularity, time itself could not have existed before the Big Bang. And when Hawking is asked what happened before the Big Bang, he says there was no time before the Big Bang. But he then goes on to say, we've finally found something that doesn't have a cause because there was no time for a cause to exist in. He's referring to the universe. For me, this means that there is no possibility of a creator because there is no time for a creator to have existed, for a creator to have existed in. So Hawking's picture, which goes back to the brief history of time, uh, is of a universe in which time itself doesn't exist before the Big Bang, but he's going to go on to develop a somewhat more refined model in which this universe, uh, the space-time itself, is actually not bounded. And so, in fact, in principle, you could have a universe that extends infinitely far back in time, uh, that there is no discrete moment, and that the Big Bang is a sort of uh, uh, the, the moment of the singularity of this boundless but finite universe. Regardless of which model you accept, uh, what Hawking is saying is that when time doesn't exist, a creator can't exist because the creator has to work in time, has to exist in time as we all do, um, and therefore can't create if the universe, before the universe existed, there was no time. Now, Hawking's creator, who is constrained to exist within time, is decidedly not the Judeo-Christian God who, and the clearest exposition of this is in the scholastic philosophers, and in particular in, in the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas, that the creator is outside of time, that the creator is existence itself. 
is pure act. I mean, you can make the list of the way Aquinas refers to this. And so if someone like Hawking had actually read some philosophy rather than dismissed philosophy, he might have come upon a statement like this. This is from Gavin Kerr's uh, article from 2012. He's a, a philosopher, a metaphysician. So he talks about Hawking's model, that the beginning of the universe, in Hawking's view, is synonymous with its creation, a view that's commonly accepted by atheists and theists alike. Accordingly, on this view, any model of the universe that denies a beginning to it denies its being created. And Hawking's model from the brief history of time, the 1998 book, was of a finite universe with no boundary in four-dimensional space-time, and therefore the universe is beginningless and therefore uncreated. This is different from what Hawking says in that quote that was taken in the 2018 article, where before the Big Bang there was no time, but he was really simplifying his model. The main point is, his view was the universe didn't have a beginning effectively, even though there was a Big Bang. If it didn't have a beginning, it was therefore uncreated. But what this position does not consider, Kerr goes on to point out, and now this is the classic Thomistic view, is the notion of a creator as a cause of existence. A cause of existence need not begin the universe. The cause just needs to grant existence to the universe. If God is omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, unchanging, immaterial, exists outside of time, then regardless of whether the universe is infinite or finite in time, its existence, everything within it, depends at every moment on this first cause, this uncaused first cause. And so to ins insist on the need for a creator is to insist on the need for a cause of existence, as Kara goes on to say. And he points out that either the existence of the universe is gratuitous, in which case it receives existence from something else, or it exists in virtue of what it is. He makes a very good point here. It is arguable that the latter idea, that the universe just is what it is, can't be the case because existence in no way enters into our understanding of the universe. We can entertain different models of the universe, all of which could exist. So this again is this Thomistic concept that the essence of something and its existence are different. You can imagine a unicorn as well as you can imagine a horse. The unicorn has an essence that you can define, but not an existence. And in the mind of God, everything has an essence, even those things that are not yet created or remain uncreated by God. Only God is his own existence. Only God's essence is his existence. And of course, this goes well back before the scholastic philosophers of the 13th century, it goes back to chapter three of Exodus, where uh, Moses encounters God, asks God what his name is, and God says, I am that am, or I am that will be, and goes on to say, tell the, tell the Pharaoh, I am sent, you, sent me, uh, pure being. So um, to finish the quote here, arguably, uh, because one can entertain different models of the universe, all of which could exist, thereby indicating that what it is to be a universe is not what it is to be. Arguably, then, the universe is not existence itself. It is something, the sum of parts, including us, that has to be created. And that creation is not the beginning. The creation is the bringing into existence of something that prior to that, prior in an ontological sense, not a temporal sense, uh, does not exist, and that that happens at every moment. Now, did Lemaitre recognize that? And the answer is yes. Um, he wrote at one point, uh, and I unfortunately don't know what the date of is this, this was, we may speak of the Big Bang as of a beginning. I do not say a creation. Physically, it's a beginning in the sense that if something happened before, it has no observable influence on the behavior of our universe. As any feature of matter before the beginning has been completely lost by the extreme contraction of the theoretical zero, and cosmologists would agree with that today, more or less. The question if it was a beginning or a creation, something started from nothing, is a philosophical question, 
which cannot be settled by physical or astronomical considerations. Now, one can go beyond that because there's not much that's directly Thomistic in this. But in the library at Louvain is an early version of the nature manuscript that Lemaitre wrote. And in that earlier version, a version that he didn't send to the journal, there's a final paragraph that's crossed out that says, I think that everyone who believes in a supreme being supporting every being and every acting, and here again, Lemaitre's imperfect English, this was evidently action, supporting every being and every action, believes also that God is essentially hidden and may be glad to see how present physics provides a veil hiding the creation. Leaving aside physics, hiding the creation, the first part of this is very, very Thomistic. A supreme being that supports every being and every action that is pure act and that supports every being in its existence. So I think from this it's clear that Lemaitre understood the implications of his model as not meaning that God lit the, the, lit the, the flash paper, as um, Hawking put it, to start the universe, but is the Thomistic God who keeps everything in existence at every moment. Lemaitre had a couple of other things, many other things to say about science and religion. He had an amusing comment on biblical concordism, the effort to read into the books of the Bible, our modern understanding of science. Um, when asked why a scientist should accept the Trinity if uh, everything else about uh, the letters of Paul are so archaic in terms of an understanding of, of, of the physics of the time and so forth, he says, should a priest reject relativity because it contains no authoritative exposition on the doctrine of the Trinity? Once you realize that the Bible does not purport to be a textbook of science, the old controversy between religion and science vanishes. If the theory of relativity had also been necessary for salvation, it would have been revealed to St. Paul or to Moses. So the point is that the writers inspired by God, they're writing the word of God, but they're writing it in the context of the time and their understanding of the physical world of that time that they lived in. And he makes that strong statement in many places. He also makes, in a couple of places, an extraordinary statement about the comprehensibility of things. Remember Einstein's famous comment that the great mystery of the universe is its comprehensibility. And Lemaitre writes at the end of a book, The Primeval Atom, uh, he talks about the splendid endeavors of science and goes on to express, quote, our gratitude to one who has said, I am the truth one who gave us the mind to understand him and to recognize a glimpse of his glory in our universe, which he has so wonderfully adjusted to the mental power with which he has endowed us. In another quote earlier, he talks about our minds being adjusted to be able to understand the cosmos. So this is a kind of a two-way street, but nonetheless, he's very clear that God has imbued human beings with the ability to understand this creation for which God is always and ultimately responsible. Now, let me talk in closing about Lemaitre's legacy. Almost all the major cosmological questions that have been thought about and that exist today were considered by Lemaitre in the period from 1927 to 1934. And I mentioned a number of them, they're listed here. I'll mention one other, Schwarzschild a year after Einstein uh, published his theory of relativity, used that theory of relativity to construct what we would now call a black hole, mathematically, of course. He had a singularity, a place where the physics failed at the center of the black hole, but he also had a singularity in his solution at what we would now call the event horizon of the black hole, what's also called the Schwarzschild radius. That's the place at which the escape velocity begins to ex exceed the speed of light. And this troubled physicists at the time. Why should there be a second singularity at this finite distance from the center? Lemaitre solved the problem. He said it was an issue of coordinate transformations. He changed the coordinate system and he removed the singularity. His contribution was not recognized. Why? Because he published that paper in French in a Belgian journal. That one was not translated until the 1990s. 
And it was uh, the famous cosmologist Peebles, who won the Nobel Prize two years ago, who wrote the demonstration that our physical universe expanded from a very different state grew out of advances in the 1920s and 1930s that to a striking degree were the work of a single person, Georges Lemaitre. And so the question is, why was this forgotten? And there are really two theories. The one of Luminette on the lower left, which was that Lemaitre effectively wrote his key papers in French. Uh, he was just too foreign for the Anglo-Americans who didn't read French journals. And on the right, Robert Kirshner's alternative idea that he just stopped doing cosmology too early. He solved all these problems, but was not a figure participating in the heyday of the Big Bang in the 1950s and early 1960s, and therefore lost out. Some aspect of both is likely, but all of this re-examination of Lemaitre led in 2018 to a resolution put before the International Astronomical Union to rename Hubble's law, the Hubble-Lemaitre law. It passed with 78% of the votes in favor. Now, whether astronomers will follow this or not is unclear. Uh, it's more awkward to put two names in front of a law and some are skeptical that they will do this. Nonetheless, Lemaitre demonstrated not only an extraordinary ability in cosmology, but an extraordinary ability to bring together his science with his faith. These were not non-overlapping magisteria. And that is best expressed in the statement he made when he accepted the Franck Prize in 1934, when he said, science is beautiful. It deserves to be loved for itself as it is a reflection of God's creative thought. And in this era where scientists argue that religion is dead, that philosophy is dead, that science and religion are implacable foes, that you cannot be a scientist without discarding your faith. It's important to remember these, these words and the extraordinary work of this Catholic priest and cosmologist, Georges-Henri Joseph-Edouard Lemaitre. Thank you very much.